Okay, we're in Psalm 49, and you know that we have not always put a lot of emphasis on the type of psalm that we're dealing with or haven't discussed it in detail. But tonight's psalm is a wisdom psalm. Wisdom psalms are characterized more by teaching men than praising God. And so it's going to be a teaching psalm and it's going to deal with a problem that is particularly dealt with in these wisdom type psalms, 37, 73, and that is the prosperity of the wicked and what that means and and how that looks in the long view of things. But Psalm 49, and I'm reading from the New American Standard Bible. Some of your translations are going to differ in important points. Make note of that, and if I don't mention it in class, you feel free to. Okay. For the choir director, a psalm of the sons of Korah. Hear this, all peoples. Give ear, all inhabitants of the world, both low and high, rich and poor, together. My mouth will speak wisdom, and the meditation of my heart will be understanding. I will incline my ear to a proverb. I will express my riddle on the harp. Why should I fear in days of adversity, when the iniquity of my foes surrounds me? Even those who trust in their wealth and boast in the abundance of their riches No man can by any means redeem his brother or give to God a ransom for him. For the redemption of his soul is costly, and he should cease trying forever. That he should live on eternally, that he should not undergo decay. For he sees that even men, even wise men die. The stupid and senseless alike perish and leave their wealth to others. Their inner thought is their houses are forever and their dwelling places to all generations. They have called their lands after their own names. But man in his pomp will not endure. He is like the beasts that perish. This is the way of those who are foolish and of those after them who approve their words, Silah. As sheep, they are appointed for Sheol. Death shall be their shepherd, and the upright shall rule over them in the morning, and their form shall be for Sheol to consume, so that they have no habitation. But God will redeem my soul from the power of Sheol, and he will receive me, Salah. Do not be afraid when a rich man when a man becomes rich when the glory of his house is increased for when he dies he will carry nothing with away his glory will not descend after him though while he lives he congratulates himself and though men praise you when you do well for yourself he shall go to the generation of his fathers they shall never see the light man is pomped yet without understanding is like the beast that perish. Okay. Powerful words. I hope we can do them justice in our attempt to explain them. I've written on the board that the first few verses of this psalm are a call for all to listen. He says, hear this, O peoples. You remember, those of you who are in our Deuteronomy class now, Deuteronomy 6.4, Hear, O Israel, Deuteronomy 6.4. Proverbs 1, verse 2, has a call to listen. Micah, in Micah 1, verse 2, has a call here. The point is, all sections of the Old Testament, wisdom, literature, law, prophets, all of them have this statement to hear. Hear this, all people. Give ear, all inhabitants of the earth. Do any of you find that audience interesting? What do you find interesting about that audience? Not just the Jews. Yeah, it's not just for Israelites. Is it only Jewish people who die? <laughs> no. That applies to all people. These words, and this is typical of wisdom literature. 
Do you know in the book of Proverbs, there's not one mention of Abraham or the covenant with Abraham or Moses or the covenant with him. None of that in the book of Proverbs. Now, that doesn't mean the writer of Proverbs was unaware of it or that his teaching is inconsistent with those sections of Scripture, but it is an appeal to all people. And this is the same for Psalm 49. Hear this, all peoples. Give ear, all inhabitants of the world. And he shows how inclusive this is by saying both low and high, rich and poor together. Now, the low and high that is at the first of the New American Standard, it may be appear, it may be translated different ways in your version. Um, this, what it is, is actually two different ways in Hebrew to say sons of man. He uses two different words for man. This is also done in Psalm 62 and verse 9. Men of low degree are only vanity and men of rank are a lie. But since he uses the same word, there's obviously some kind of distinction being made, it seems. And so your translations have low and high to correspond to the other distinction, rich and poor. Low and high, rich and poor, what he is about to say applies to everyone. My mouth will speak wisdom and the meditation the meditation of my heart will be understanding. Now the word that is translated meditation here in 49.3 was the same root word that was used back in Psalm 1 and verse 2. Blessed is the man who meditates on the word day and night. It was also used in uh, Psalm 37, 30 and 31, as it talks about uh, the wise man who considers the sayings of the Lord and who meditates on them. And so here, same thing. His language, his words are going to be the, the result of consideration, reflection, meditation, my mouth will speak wisdom. The meditation of my heart will be understanding. I will incline my ear to a proverb. I will express my riddle on the heart. Now, this particular word for proverbs, proverb in verse 4, is the word for proverb, uh, which is the title of the book of Proverbs. Uh, the first word of the text of the book of Proverbs. This is the same word. I will incline my ear to a proverb. I will express my riddle on the harp. There are portions of this that are going to sound like the Proverbs. There are portions of this. What does Psalm 49 also sound like? What other book does it have some similarities with? Deborah, you're saying something. Ecclesiastes. Okay, yes. Ecclesiastes. I agree. Uh, now, so... He begins this rather simply by simply calling upon all to listen and all to hear these words. Now, he gets into the substance of his message, it seems to me, more in verse 5. Why should I fear in days of adversity when the iniquity of my foes surround, surrounds me, even those who trust their wealth and boast in the abundance of their riches. He says, why should I fear? In verse 16, he says, do not be afraid when a man becomes rich. I, I don't usually go around worried about everybody's bank accounts and fretting that somebody has become rich. How does this help us understand the psalm? What, what does this indicate is going on? The rich taking advantage of the poor. It may be that they are taking advantage of the poor and mistreating them and using the influence and power that sometimes goes with wealth to do evil 
and not to do good. Now, why would I say that? Because right after he says, why should I fear in days of adversity? He said, when the iniquity of my foes surrounds me. So it may be evil people who are becoming rich and becoming more and more powerful. And he is showing the readers their mortality in order to stress they're not as strong as they seem. They're not as strong as they seem. Don't worry about them. Don't be afraid of them. Do not fear Man, the Bible tells us many times, Proverbs 29, 25, uh, I believe is the fear of man is a snare. And he's telling them not to fear. Now, verse 6, we read something very important about these men. Uh, By the way, before we get to verse 6, I want to make a point. Do you know the word in verse 5 which is translated uh, when the iniquity of foes surrounds me? When the iniquity of foes surrounds me. uh, The Hebrew text could be the wickedness of deceivers uh, surrounds me. But that word uh, deceivers or that word foes is a form in Hebrew of the word Jacob. It's a form of the word Jacob. Remember, is he not rightly named Jacob? Because he has deceived me these two times? I think that's Genesis 27, 36. Let's write around there. Mary? Uh, The New King James has when the iniquity at my heels surrounds me, which leads into Jacob. Okay. Yes, yes. Um, grasping his brother's uh, heel. And um, yes, those words, those words, uh, that word is sometimes translated uh, that way. Um, it, it, can, it can have that sense of being an, a, a, of one who is at my heels, that, that particular name, Jacob. But verse 6, yes. Uh, the ESV translates that those who cheat me. Cheat me. Yeah, cheat for the me. foes. Okay. And um, that fits the idea of Jacob well, too, <laughs> unfortunately. And um, I mean, if you can't read the story of Jacob and then see the New Testament comments about God, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and see God's mercy, you're not looking very close. You're not thinking on it very closely. But even those who trust in their wealth, who boast, they trust in their wealth, they boast in the abundance of their riches. Now, in the book of Psalms, the object of our trust, the object of our boasting, should be the Lord. Some in horses and some in chariots, but we boast in the Lord our God. Psalm 34 2 talks about boasting in God. And to boast in something is to trust in something. Uh, there is Jehoshaphat in 2 Chronicles um, chapter 17, verses 5 and 6, is said to have greatly exalted himself or boasted in the ways of the Lord. And here, the Bible tells us that these men boast and trust in their riches. The object of their boast, the object of their trust is wrong. Let not the wise man boast of his wisdom, but not the mighty man boast of his might. But let him who boasts boast of this, that he understands and knows me, that I am the Lord who exercises loving kindness. But these people trust in their wealth. They boast in the abundance of riches. In verse 7 says, No man can by any means redeem his brother or give to God a ransom for him. Now some of your versions differ here. How many of your versions in verse 7 do not have the word brother? 
What do you have there? ESV. Okay. Surely. Surely. It says surely. Okay, the word that's translated brother, very clear. There's a difference in one um, consonant, I believe, between the word brother and the word surely, and some have amended uh, that text. The Greek translation, the Septuagint, has the word brother. And I think the point is basically the same anyway. You'll see some commentaries argue for the... I saw more that argued surely or yet, that that's a better translation. I saw more arguing for that. But some will argue for that particular term, brother. But the idea is the same. Don't lose sight of the idea. Redemption... Redemption means to redeem, which is a key word in this psalm, referred to in verse 7 twice, in verse 8, and in verse 15. It's all the form of the same word. But to redeem is to, uh, to relieve or to release at the payment of a price. Now, one of the places you first see this used in the Old Testament is in Exodus 13. When your firstborn son was born, or the firstborn of a clean animal, they were devoted to the Lord. But you were to redeem your son with a lamb. When you gave the son, or excuse me, when you gave the lamb, that was the redemption price. He was released at the payment of of the price. He was released when you gave the lamb in his place. Or if it was an unclean animal that you didn't sacrifice, like a donkey, you offered a lamb in its place. But but one of the ways redemption worked also is when someone was poor, Leviticus 25, beginning about verse 25, and through the end of that long chapter, I think there are 55 verses there, but in that chapter, what you see is if your brother was poor and had to sell a family piece of land, or if the brother was poor and had to sell himself to slavery, a near kinsman, a brother, could come along and pay the money he owed on the land, the money he owes that led him to slavery, and release him from slavery, release him to from slavery when he uh, paid the price, or all, or else to give him access to his land. Sometimes money could get you out of trouble like that. You could redeem yourself. You could, as a slave, prosper and redeem yourself. Pay off your debt. Leviticus 25 tells us that. But you can't redeem yourself from death. There are some things that money can buy your way out of, but it cannot buy your way out of everything. And the problem sometimes with riches is it leaves those people who have gotten away with everything because they had money to think that they can do that. Even with death. No man can by any means redeem his brother or give to God a ransom for him. For the redemption of his soul is costly. And he should cease forever, that he should live on eternally, that he should not undergo decay. A rich person can't pay enough. He cannot pay enough in order to get himself out of the penalty of death, that he can keep on living forever in this world. I'm not so sure all people still recognize that yet. The the way people talk, it's asking... and, and I have to say, sometimes the way I respond when someone close dies, we're stunned. <laughs> Why? We know it's coming. And we know there's no way out. And this is just telling us 
that there is no way out. And riches cannot buy himself out of every problem. Now, I also want to want you to notice in verse 9, that phrase, undergo decay. Undergo decay. That phrase in this context is the exact opposite of to live eternally. What does it mean to undergo decay? Well, it's the opposite of living eternally. Now, one of the reasons this is a big deal, and I want to say something about it, in Psalm 16, verse 10, you will not abandon my soul to Sheol, nor allow your Holy One to undergo decay. So Psalm 16, verse 10, use that. That passage is quoted twice in the New Testament to refer to the resurrection of Jesus in Acts 2, 25-28. In Acts 13, verses 35 through 37. And we're going to talk about that, Lord willing, at the end. But I want you to see what undergo decay means. Undergo decay is the opposite of to live eternally. And no man, no man can pay enough money in order to redeem himself from death, that he should live on eternally, that he should not undergo decay. And then he stresses that the grave. The grave is their eternal home, but the grave is the final destiny of us all. In verse 10, he sees that even wise men die. The stupid and senseless alike perish and leave their wealth to others. The wise men die. In the book of Ecclesiastes, in Ecclesiastes 2, verses 12 through 17, Ecclesiastes 2, 12 through 17, the writer talks about how wisdom excels folly as light excels darkness. There are benefits to wisdom. They aren't extolled as often in Ecclesiastes as they are in Proverbs, but there are benefits of wisdom, and, and Ecclesiastes knows that. Wisdom excels folly like light excels darkness, but in one way there is no advantage. Because the wise man dies just like the fool. And it is an observation of that that leads the writer to say, therefore I hated life. You know, we may work for wisdom. We may avoid certain things that are going to lead to an early demise. We may try to live right. We may try to treat others decently. And our end is just like the end of the fool. The wise men die. The stupid and senseless perish. And when the wise man dies, the fool dies. And all these people die. They all leave their wealth to others. There are going to be quite a few indications in the song that we leave all we have behind. We leave it all. And Ecclesiastes says that. Right after Ecclesiastes 2, 12 through 17 states we all die, Ecclesiastes 2, verses 18 through 23 states we do not know who will inherit our money, whether he will be a wise person or whether he will be a fool. We don't know. These people die. They leave their wealth. Now, verse 11 is a point where there may be differences in your translations. This is what the New American Standard says. Their inner thought is that their homes are forever. Now, right there, some of your versions have something different. What do they have instead of inner thought? Graves. Their graves. Their graves are their houses forever. So... The difference in Hebrew here is um, a difference uh, between one letter. Is one letter and the, the Hebrew text reads their inward thought. 
the translations like the Septuagint and the Syriac, they have the grave. But the basic idea still is the same. The basic idea is that they are they are they may think to themselves their inner thought may be I'm going to live here forever I'm not going to die I'm not going to experience their death but their eternal home is the grave. What we see in verse 11, it says their inner thought is that their houses are forever and their dwelling places to all generations. They have called lands after their own names. You know, it was a thing that kings did when they conquered a city and they called it by their own name. These people have named, they have named land after their own name. That's an attempt to perpetuate their name. And yet, while they are trying to perpetuate their name, their permanent dwelling place is going to be the grave. Now, one writer said this, Archaeologists are grateful for all those who painstakingly provided for themselves a nice grave with inscriptions. It remains a witness to what happened in the past. But apart from a few archaeologists, most people don't care. Archaeologists have used these tombs sometimes to study ancient societies and what they were like and who these people were and and they'll even sometimes study the size of the bones and try to make determinations of how they ate and how much protein was in their diet and how tall the average man was at that particular time or the average woman at that particular time. But while they are so busy amassing riches and building land and calling it by their name, their permanent home is the grave. And this should be a sobering reflection for all of us. And it says in verse 12, man in his pomp will not endure. He is like the beast that perish. Okay, that word and that statement in verse 12. Verse 12 and verse 20 form the kind of refrain for this particular psalm. Basic idea repeated twice about man in his pomp will not endure. And it says he's like the beast that perish. By the way, a quick defense of myself I don't know if any of you remember this. But you know, we were reading Psalm 39. We were studying Psalm 39. At the end of verse 5, it said, Surely man at his best is a mere breath. Salah. And I read it, beast. <laughs> if you all remember that. And you'll say, could you read that again? I think particularly one person calls trouble and asks about that. Um, he said, could you read that again? And, um, and, 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 but the reason I said beast instead of best is because of Psalm 49. Um, now, man in his pomp will not endure. He is like the beast that perish. But the phrase that I was going to notice in particular is the phrase endure, the word endure that's used here. This word endure is used for a very temporary lodging. It is used in the context of spending the night. For example, Lot is asking the men who come to him at Sodom in Genesis 19.2 to spend the night. Um, And also this term is used in Judges 19 verse 15 in a story that bears dangerous resemblance 
uh, to Sodom and Gomorrah. But in both cases, the, when they are asking someone to spend the night, it is this particular word. This is a word that's used for a very temporary dwelling place. And the point the text is making, man in his pomp will not endure, is to show us how short-lived, how transitory the prosperity of the wicked is. This is a word used for the most temporary of lodgings. And yet this is a word that's used to ascribe his moment, his moment of pomp. You think about it. If someone is has great riches, great wealth, great abundance, and lives in disregard of God, an eternity of being lost, what is a hundred years? A hundred years of prosperity going to be? It's going to be a lodging for the night. Man in his pomp will not endure. He is like the beast who perish. We have mentioned Ecclesiastes a couple of times. Like the beast who perish. Ecclesiastes 3 verses 19 through 21. Man and beast dialogue. Ecclesiastes 3, 19 through 21. So this bears so many similarities to Ecclesiastes. Now so far, I've pretty much done all the talking what questions do you have? What ideas do you have right there? Anything? Usually at a funeral, if they're closed, of the, if they're grave, I will make the point that this is not his final resting place. And quote John 5. Yeah. So, you want to correct that? No, because because <laughs> because this is what the, this is what this this text is emphasizing. No, I understand what you're saying, and I would agree with what you're saying. Uh, but in the same standpoint, you know, we'll all hear his voice and come from the tombs. But this word forever is used in this context for their dwelling. So contextually. Um, you know, I think I'm difficult. I, now, I acknowledge that I was wrong on the beast thing. But, um, but um, I'm, gonna hold, I'm holding my ground here. <laughs> what was that? Reluctantly. Reluctantly acknowledged I was wrong, yes. But, but I, I'm going to... But no, underst- we understand that this, the whole point of this passage is not to speak of an eternity. Not to this point. But, but to just you know, stay, hey, here's their most permanent dwelling place. Now, I, I said that. To this point, the psalm has not really made, up through verse 12, any kind of distinction between the righteous and the wicked, between the wise and the foolish, between the high and the low. It's really not made those distinctions yet. And, and we know... There are, there's common ground with all of us in the sense we're going to die. But here in verses 13 through 15, the text makes a distinction. The text begins to distinguish the upright from those who are wicked. This is the way of those, verse 13, this is the way of those who are foolish and of those after them who approve their words, Salah. As sheep, they are appointed for Sheol. Death shall be their shepherd. And the upright shall rule over them in the morning, and their form shall be for Sheol to consume, so that they have no habitation. But God will redeem my soul from the power of death. He will receive me. This is the way of the foolish. He mentions the foolish in verse 13. He mentions the upright in verse 14. And this is drawing a contrast between their destiny. In one of the most famous, if not the most famous, 
passage of the Psalms, one that we've studied together. The Lord is my shepherd. I shall not want. But here in this passage, death shall be their shepherd. The Lord as shepherd leads us through the valley of the shadow of death in Psalm 23. Verse 4, but here death is their shepherd. Death is their shepherd. There are several writers who said things extremely well right here. Like dumb sheep on their way to slaughter. They don't know while they they don't know where they are going. But while they are grazing in the pleasant pastures of their life, thinking all is well, death is already grazing on them. It was Peter Craigie who said that. I think about that. Dumb sheep not knowing where they're going while they're grazing, death is grazing on them. That is a sad picture. If we could get people to understand their money, their houses, their good job does not provide ultimate security in life that they have death as their shepherd and they need the Lord as their shepherd as sheep they are appointed for Sheol death shall be their shepherd and the term Sheol is referring to to death destruction and and, uh, all that is opposite of life and verse 14 says that the upright shall rule over them in the morning. Is that a reference to the fact that in eternity the righteous uh, rule over the wicked or or some kind of an allusion to the fact that uh, they are blessed with the wicked suffer? I, I think that, that, that what's so powerful is in verse 15 God will redeem my soul for the power of Sheol. He will receive me. Selah. God will redeem me. He stated before that there is not anybody in this world who is rich enough in verses 7 through 9 to pay for the redemption of their soul. There is no one who can do that. But what man is powerless to do, what the richest and wealthiest of men are powerless to do, God can do. God can do. Now, some have stated for years... There is no reference to life after death in the Psalms. And there, when some presented some passages like this, it's like their statement has become law. Well, it can't be a reference to life after death because there's no references to life after death in the Psalms. Uh, and <laughs> circular reasoning there. Um, interestingly, one person who has broken through some of that view is a liberal writer uh, who wrote three volumes in the Anchor Bible who, who was trying to compare the Bible and the Hebrew language constantly with things he found in the Ugaritic language and he just saw references to life after death everywhere. In the psalm. He, he, was, he was not one who believed in inspiration, but, but he says the psalm talks about life after death everywhere. And because he was from that liberal background, um, even sometimes people who didn't believe in inspiration started listening a little bit. I, I ran across this in a footnote last night, and, and it's amazing what you can access on the internet with just tapping in something. A pretty good article, I read most of it, not all of it, is, is I believe it was written in the 70s, maybe 80s, by T.D. Alexander. If any of you want this afterwards, it's called The Psalms and the Afterlife. Psalms and the Afterlife, T.D. Alexander. And uh, But I do think that this passage does indicate a difference between the righteous and the wicked. If 
If this simply means God delivers us from trials in life and we live a longer life but we still all die and have the same end here, what good is that? And so this is one thing, boy, I, 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 in, in saying what I said before about this saying the grave is their home, it's not that this doesn't have any kind of indication of life beyond the grave because it does. And, and I'll tell you one thing that I think is very interesting is that word in verse 15, receive. This word receive is the word used in Genesis 5.24 for Enoch being taken to be with God. It is a word that's used repeatedly in 2 Kings 2 when Elijah is taken by the Lord. It is also a word used in another psalm that I think powerfully demonstrates life after death. Psalm 73 and verse 24. With your counsel you will guide me and afterward receive me to glory. That sure does sound like something beyond this life, doesn't it? Now, I grant it. There are some psalms where the writers seem to say there is no remembrance of you in death. But right now, just dealing with this psalm, and here, the fact that this particular word is used in these passages may be significant. We're all going to die. Money's not going to do us any good. And we're not going to be able to take it with us nor is any kind of power or influence, or power or influence, if we can achieve that among brethren, is it going to make any difference? The only thing that's going to make a difference is God. And the more we reflect upon the fact that we're going to die, and we pursue that one relationship that cannot be dissolved by death, the better off we're going to be. Now, even, even the best of marriages are limited. Till death do you part. That's not said of our relationship with God. And so in verse 16, as he closes, he says, Do not be afraid when a rich man becomes rich. When the glory of his house is increased... For when he dies, he will carry nothing away. His glory will not descend after him. Naked I came from my mother's womb. Naked I shall return. The Lord is given. The Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. Job 121. Ecclesiastes 5.15 says the same. 1 Timothy 6 and verse 7 tells us having... We brought nothing into this world. We cannot take anything out of it. Having food and clothing, let us therefore be content. Do not be afraid when a man becomes rich, when the glory of his house increases. For when he dies, he will carry nothing away. His glory will not descend after him. Verse 18, For though, though while he lives, he congratulates himself. And though men praise you when you do well for yourself, he shall go to the generation of his fathers. They shall never see the light. Here, going to the generation of the fathers is not a good thing. He will go to the generation of his fathers. He will not see the light. It is easy to become very self-satisfied with any kind of success. <coughs> and there's a reason to be thankful if you're valedictorian of your class if you're voted most valuable player of your sports team, if you're doing well at your job and you get a promotion, if, you're, if you have success, be thankful to God for it. But no, it's transitory. It's a moment. 
and it's to be used to his glory. If we use it to his glory, he'll take care of our eternity. We'll go to the generation of our fathers. They shall never see the light. I, I've been with people several occasions and some things are coming to my mind where people showed me their tombstone. And I'm wondering when they're saying this, what's going through their mind? You know. Um, but the fact that we don't have a tombstone prepared doesn't make it any less certain. But but to me, I've, that's not something I've saved, I've put a lot of money into or have a lot of concern over. But in verse 20, man in his pomp, yet without understanding, it's like the beast that perish. Now, in the Septuagint translation, verse 12 and verse 20 are identical, but it's not true in the Hebrew text. What is the little difference between verse 12 and verse 20 when you compare both of them start with man and his pomp. Both of them emphasize he's like the beast that perish. Well, not endure versus yet without understanding. Yeah, one emphasizes the transitory nature of the man in verse 12. The other emphasized he just doesn't get it. He doesn't understand. You know, he may think he's really got it. And everybody else doesn't understand. Man in his palm is without understanding. And is like the beast that perish. How would you sum that psalm up? We have a few minutes and before we're going to talk about, of course, how it is applied to Jesus. But what what is this telling us about what to avoid and how to live? And what about that? What is it saying? Certainly says avoid trusting in riches. Okay. They don't, don't do you any good. Yeah. Ultimately. Don't be like these who boast and trust in wealth. Don't be like those who do that. Don't do it. And also, and maybe because I'm assuming you, maybe that's not right, but but because I don't feel heavily oppressed by those who are rich. Uh, it is also telling them not to be afraid of them either. Not, others not to be afraid. When you see this person prospering, you see this person successful, don't, don't be alarmed at that. This isn't the final day of reckoning yet. You know, if you're watching a replay of a game that you know how it ends, and your team is behind at one point and it looks desperate, when you're watching that replay, you don't get nervous. Because you know how it's going to end. And that's in a way what he's telling us to do. He's telling us to live right now in light of the fact that we know the end. We know how human history will end and it will culminate in God's triumph and those who trust in Him. So I think that's a good description. Anything else? I, I, there may not be much else to say because that is pretty, such an overriding theme. Um, don't envy, don't envy the rich. Yes, and and remember that's how Psalm thirty-seven started, mm -hmm. which was a wisdom psalm. Um, I believe it started that way. Uh, if it's not, it's it's found a couple of times in the psalm um, that. But yes, now this is a point where. I have to tell y'all that every week, and I and I expect this to happen again, every week you all think of something that I hadn't thought of when, when we did this. That's why I don't record my podcast before this class, because I think y'all may have a good point. Not that I'm gonna give any of you credit, but 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 y'all may have a good point that I may use about how Jesus fulfills some. 49. Now, I think there's going to be a couple of obvious points that are going to come out, but let me make one that's not so obvious. In verse 4, I will incline my ear to a proverb. 
I will express my riddle on a harp. The word for proverb is the same word for the book of Proverbs as we've already talked about. When this was translated, the Greek translation, the word... Now, I bet you all know this Greek word. I want to just put the transliteration. Parabole. Okay. Now, Micah, you know a few languages there. See if it can help you here. Parabole. How would that probably be translated to English? Parable. Parable. See, look at that. I told you you all knew. Parable. This is a word used for Jesus speaking. <coughs> Now, what does that show us? I think the fact that this will be the word used when this is a word used to translate proverb a lot in the Old Testament, it shows us Jesus as a wisdom teacher. Jesus is a prophet. Jesus is a king. Jesus is a priest. And Jesus is a teacher of profound wisdom as well. He is all of these. And I think when it uses this word of Jesus, is emphasizing his role as a wisdom teacher. But what else did you all see? Well, how else do we see his fulfillment, David? Well, when I get down uh, verses 7 and 8 about how costly it is to redeem a soul and you know you, know, you can't come up with that you know you should quit trying yeah. but yet Jesus was the ransom yes. given for our souls and he could yes his life was worth enough I think this particular word that's used in the Greek text I think it is only used like three times in the New Testament. Um, I'm remembering two of the three. Let's see if I have this written down. But two of them are Titus 2, 14, and 1 Peter 1, verse 18 and 19. And the way that David worded it particularly ties in with the reading in 1 Peter 1, 1 Peter 1, verses 18 and 19. The Bible talks about knowing that you were not redeemed with perishable things like silver or gold from your futile way of life inherited from your forefathers, but with precious blood as a lamb unspotless, a lamb unblemished and spotless, the blood of Christ. I'll try to read that again. Knowing you were not redeemed with perishable things like silver and gold from the futile way of life inherited from your forefathers, but with precious blood as of a lamb, unblemished and spotless, the blood of Christ. You weren't redeemed with these things. You weren't redeemed with silver and gold. No man can redeem his life for money. You can't pay enough to redeem your life. But what we could not pay enough to do, God in His grace did by giving His Son. We were redeemed with precious blood. Okay? You and I hope, I hope this wouldn't happen to anybody. Certainly hope it would never happen to us. But suppose we got a call. And someone says, I have your son. I have your daughter. I'm going to kill them if you don't pay this ransom. If we had the money to pay it and we thought they were for real, we'd pay the ransom. We didn't have the money to pay. And God paid the ransom. And we should stand in awe of that. Amen. 
is a similar uh, passage for that uh, in verse 8, Psalm 116, 15. Precious in the sight of the Lord is the death of his saints. That, that idea of being precious or costly. That yes, that, that particular word that's used there in Psalm 116, verse 15, is the word that is used. I'm making sure to confirm this, Micah, uh, but it is the word that is used in verse 8. Verse 8 about being costly. And that may be what you're calling attention to. But the word costly in 49, verse 8, uh, is the word um, costly... It's the word precious in passages like Psalm 72, 14 and Psalm uh, 116, 15. The, it's very precious, it's very costly to God when one of his children die. Uh, we'll, we'll talk about Psalm 116, Lord, when we get there. But, but yeah, it's not the idea that it's a beautiful thing, that death is a beautiful thing. The Revelation 14 may teach the same idea, but 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 this is a little different thought. But but certainly um, the life of each person is so precious, so costly. Let's tie this redemption to the fact that about undergoing decay in verse nine. Um, look at Acts 13 in particular. Acts 13, Paul is preaching his longest recorded sermon at Antioch of Pisidia. And he says in Acts 13, verse 35, Acts 13, 35 through 37 is what I'm going to read. It says, Therefore he also says in another psalm, You will not allow your Holy One to undergo decay. You will not allow your Holy One to undergo decay. For David, after he served the purpose of God in his own generation, fell asleep, was laid among his fathers, and underwent decay. But he whom God raised did not undergo decay. Well, what does undergo decay mean? Undergo decay means your body lies in the ground and it disintegrates. It um, decays. David underwent decay. So David was not the ultimate fulfillment of Psalm 16.10. You will not allow your Holy One to undergo decay. The ultimate fulfillment of that is Jesus in His resurrection. The Jesus who is our price of redemption, Jesus also raised. Jesus was raised in verse 9. He was raised from the dead. He did not undergo decay. The, the book of Acts says, Acts 2, a little bit past verse 28, David died and buried and his tomb is with us to this day. But the one that God raised did not undergo decay. These words don't find their ultimate fulfillment in, in Jesus, or excuse me, in David, but in Jesus who is raised. And so it is by the redemptive death of Jesus, by his resurrection, that he purchases eternal life for all of us. And God will redeem our lives from Sheol. So much could be emphasized just right in those verses 7 and 8. Uh, those verses that we've stressed, that section in verse 15. But are we missing anything? Any other thoughts that you all have there? This is something little in connection with the redeeming um, in verse 15. I thought about just the phrase, but God. You oh, yeah. Serious terrible situation, but God will redeem with Ephesians 2-4. Uh, good point. That is a good point. And, and I did, I um, meant to stress something like that earlier. You find the phrase, but God, at some of the most dramatic moments in the biblical story, and right, Ephesians 2-4 is, is, is the perfect illustration of that the Christian mentioned. But you can find it in the Old Testament. 
too. I mean, you find it a lot in Paul's epistles, but you find it in the Old Testament as well. But God, all looks helpless, all looks hopeless, and there is reason for despair seemingly, but God. But God. I'll tell you one thing I should have said more, though. We could emphasize that Jesus as a wisdom teacher and what he said about wealth is the same thing this psalm says. Uh, for example, this is... And I, and I, I would hate for somebody to just walk in and try to figure out what happened from this point. But, but anyway, Luke 12, verse 15, Jesus said, Man... Or someone came to Jesus and said, divide the inheritance between this teacher. And he says, man, who made me a judge, an arbiter over you? Even when, not even when one has an abundance of possessions, does life consist of the abundance of those possessions? And the Bible talks about the man who, it goes on to talk about the man who leaves all his wealth behind. He finds security in his wealth. He says he has much goods laid up for many years. Take your ease. Eat, drink, and be merry. But God says to him, and there's a but God that's not as encouraging. But God said to him, you fool, this night your soul will be required of you. Don't miss in the Bible story where things are placed. That's, that's something that will always enlighten you and me. But right after Luke 12, 15-21, which is a parable only in Luke, there's Luke 12, verse 22-34. And that is parallel to Jesus' teaching in the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew 6, 19-34. Life does not consist in what you eat and what you drink. Life is more than what you eat and what you drink. Seek first His kingdom. These passages are back to back. And there's so much of the vocabulary of Luke 12, 15-21 used in Luke 12, verses 24-34. For example, the man says, I have much goods laid up for many years. I'll tear down my barns. I'll build greater barns. In the next passage, the birds of the air don't have barns. And God feeds them. All that shared vocabulary show those sections go together. And of course, we do have the account. I'll give the Luke account because we mention Luke most frequently here of the rich young ruler. What must I do to inherit eternal life? Jesus quotes the commandments. He says, I've done all these from my youth up. He said, go and sell all you have and give to the poor. And follow me and you'll have riches in heaven. And he went away sorrowful. And Jesus says, how hard it is for the wealthy to enter the kingdom of God. It's harder for a rich man it's harder for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to go into heaven. Now, is that literal? I hope not, because in that audience, we would all be rich. But it is stating in the strongest conceivable terms. There is the danger with our riches, with our wealth, with our prosperity, to let that be our security instead of God. We can't take anything with us either. Okay. 2 Timothy 1.10 is a passage I have written down that Christ brought life and immortality to light to the gospel. There, there is... There are things about life after death in the Old Testament, but they're not shining as brightly and as clearly until Jesus. It is, it is Jesus who makes those things so clear. Okay. Any other thoughts, guys? Any other? Okay, Micah, would you want to lead us in closing prayer? Our Father, thank you for this 
psalm, your word, that we can uh, reflect on your wisdom. Uh, we see how we, uh, we need you, we need to be ransomed and redeemed, but we cannot do that in and of ourselves. We need you so much. Thank you for showing us your way as we uh, live around in a world where people are looking at anything but you. Help us to put our trust in you and not in our riches because you're the one that is everlasting and enduring and worthy. All praise be to you. It's in your son's name that we pray. Amen. Amen. Amen.